0: Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. (laughs) Uh, I don't know who was in the meeting and decided that men would feel honored by mountains of donuts in the lobby. But you know what? You're right. I mean, that's (laughs) men are simple creatures and uh, donuts are the way. So uh, my name is Steve. It's good to see all of you. Hey, hey. Uh, (laughs) Today. We're going to be reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, over the last year or so, if you've been with us, Or If you weren't, uh, then let me tell you, we've been reading through the Bible as a congregation. And so what we do, we're we're getting kind of close to the end. We're uh, now in the epistles of Paul and uh, we're we're zeroing in on it. So it's been a long time and I hope it's been a a real sense of, it's created some ballast within you. Uh, In order to further strengthen that ballast, what we do on Sunday morning is we take some of the passages, some of the verses, a narrative that we've read in the past week. And we just, we hold it up to the light and let it dazzle us for a few minutes. And so that's what we're going to do today. So last week we heard about the saving call of God. And for, I've, I've heard, if you, didn't, if you weren't here for that, I've heard that that, that, that ruffled some people. Um, I didn't mean to ruffle anybody, but it, it's, there are other, we're all, we all love each other. We're brothers and sisters. So. Um, I just did my best with what we had. So that, that one, we'll just leave that one where it is. Today, I don't, I don't know that there's, there's gonna be much argument. Like this is the heart of what we believe as Christians, uh, what we're gonna look at today. So we're gonna look at Paul's own writing and specifically the letter to the Romans and, and the jewel that is bound up in this passage is so precious, like so exceedingly beautiful that we just have to hold it up and it it takes our breath away so the precious stone is this the doctrine of justification (sighs) Mm, are you ready this is okay all right so we're gonna look at it we don't have any time to waste we're gonna look at it under three headings number one the problem of righteousness number two what justification does and then number three what justification shows the problem of righteousness what justification does, and then what justification shows. Number one, the problem of righteousness. It's always good to begin with the problem, and Paul states it in no uncertain terms in verse 23 of what we just read. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is a very famous verse uh, and it's likely that a lot of you have heard it before if you've been in church or even if you haven't been in church, you, you might have heard this before because this verse is kind of used as a hammer to break the will of recalcitrant non-believers who just won't submit to Jesus Christ. All have sinned, so get your act together. And some people will say, you know, like, I, I, I'm not a Christian, so... When somebody says to me, hey, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, my response is, okay. So, (laughs) like, why does that matter to me if I'm the non-believer? Why does that, I don't believe what you believe. In fact, it seems like words like sin in our culture are kind of like, the seeds that are are sown onto the the path, like that hard soil where it never bites into the dirt and actually grows a root structure. But I would suggest that's because we don't understand what sin really means. So let me try to reframe the problem. And we're going to reframe it as the problem of righteousness. Through sin, we have lost righteousness. Now, as I've said before, when we hear hear the word righteousness, we tend to think of it in terms of behavior. Like a righteous person is somebody who acts virtuously and I mean, it's not less than that, that's true, but it is certainly far more than that. So let's get a sense of what righteousness really is from the Psalms. And for this, I'm gonna go to Psalm 11, verse seven. Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright, which is to say the righteous, shall behold his face. So in this verse... It's the righteous who are called upright. And what reward do the upright, the righteous, receive? They shall behold his face. Now, that's astonishing to consider especially when you see it from the opposite side like in Romans chapter 1 we're not going to go there but in Romans chapter 1 Paul, Paul argues that it is precisely because of the people's unrighteousness that God rejects them and it's not because he's you know like a vengeful deity because it's because that's what they want they they want to be rejected so unrighteousness means exclusion from God's presence but righteousness is the hill upon which we stand to behold God's face. Are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay, good, thank you. Um, So the basic idea is this. When we think of righteousness, don't first think of behavior. It's, yes, that's true, but don't first think of behavior. When you think of righteousness in its most basic form, think of approval. And when you put it that way, That's something we all long for, to be told, like, I see everything you've ever done all the way to the bottom, and I love you. And that, I would argue, is what every human being longs for, to be told that the God of the universe looks upon them and finds that they are not worthy of condemnation, but rather They are invited to see his face and the welcoming gaze of one who approves of them. Mm. Now look, you don't even have to believe in God to agree with me here because maybe some of you don't. Let me try to explain. Think of those moments of transcendence in your life. Like think, just think back, those moments of transcendence, like those times when beauty in some form has smiled upon you. Like whether it was a, um, a feeling of rapture, when you were listening to a particular piece of music or, or awe at a, at a landscape that was illuminated to glory by the setting sun. Or maybe it was just like utter happiness, in the presence of another person. Like we all have those moments or some accomplishment, some victory. Like we all have those moments of transcendence and beauty. And when we later, when we remember those times, it's like we have this kind of mixture of happiness with bitterness. And and by bitterness, I don't mean resentment. By bitterness, I mean pain. For a moment, beauty has smiled upon us. And for a moment, you almost felt as though you belonged to it or were accepted by it. But then the music ceased. Then the light faded and you were left as you had always been. For a moment, it felt as though heaven had come down to earth. But when the beatific vision ceased, the earth was just earth again. Those things which lifted us, to the higher plane of existence, all of the sudden seem to take no more notice of us. And why should they? And music is just vibrations through the air. A landscape is just dirt and rock and grass. The other people that we experience that happiness with, there's flesh and bone But in that moment, those things became messengers of something beyond themselves. Please tell me you know what I'm talking about. Yes? Yes? It wasn't the things themselves that welcomed us into joy. It was something else for which those things, for a moment, became signs pointing beyond themselves. And don't take your revenge on those moments, those moments of beauty. That Don't take your revenge on those moments by calling them nostalgia. In those moments, you were beholding the glory of God. And for a moment, he granted you this glimpse into that world which we all long to be a part of, for which our heart pines and aches day after day. And you know what that is? It's that longing for approval in his sight. To be welcomed, to be received, to be acknowledged. This is what we long for. And now, when we return to the verse that I just read, you can really see the tragedy in it. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Through sin, we have lost any hopes of righteousness. And it is only the righteous who see the face of God to find in the end that he approves of us. The unrighteous have no standing before God, no hope of approval. But here's where I tell you, that God has actually given us a way to be found righteous. That moves us to the second point, what justification does. Now, the word justification is a legal term, uh, and it just simply means to be declared righteous. That's what justification is. Very simple. Or to put it negatively, to be declared not guilty. Now, Paul gives us two ways that we can be declared righteous, and the first is through righteous works. The Christians in the room are raising their eyebrows right now, at least internally. Uh, But you shouldn't be, because Paul actually teaches us that we can attain righteousness by works. Let me prove that. Romans chapter 2, just one chapter before, he says in verse 13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, right? We're talking about how do we become righteous? How are we declared righteous? That's justification. He says, the way you do that one way is by doing the law. You can't get any clearer than that. Like if you want a righteous standing before God, then keeping God's law is a legitimate way to do it. But as it turns out, that kind of project is impossible because as James tells us in a letter later in the New Testament, if you break even one law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And I don't know of anybody who would claim that they have never in all their lives transgressed God's law, which according to Paul in Romans chapter two would even include disobeying your own conscience. Or according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at a few weeks ago, would include the intentions of the heart. It's not just murder. It's actually the seeds of murder, which are anger. With Anyway, the point is, none of us, <laughs> none of us can live up to this standard. In fact, the situation created by that standard is pretty bleak. Listen to Paul give his assessment of humanity's project to attain righteousness through the law. This back to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, it's like, it's like he anticipates the objection. He's quoting, but he's anticipating the objection. None is righteous. Come on, somebody. No, <laughs> none, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, not one single person in all of human history has been able to attain righteousness by works of the law. I'm going to amend that statement in just a moment. But for now, that is what Paul is teaching us. Is it possible that we can gain that approval that we so long for by being good, by acting righteously, by doing justice? Yeah, that is a legitimate way, And as the reward for that kind of perfect righteousness, we shall behold God's face, which is just an, an abbreviated way of saying that we shall always belong to him and enjoy him in the everlasting kingdom of God where there shall be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. That is the destiny for all who keep the law, who are doers of the law and who are justified and declared righteous. But by Paul's reckoning, although this is a legitimate way to be declared righteous, so far, no one in human history has been able to accomplish it. And thus, we have fallen into sin, which has delivered us into unrighteousness. And by this unrighteousness, we have earned for ourselves a future of condemnation. So what are we supposed to do? Watch this. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Paul says, now look, there is another way to attain righteousness and it is separate from the law. And if none of us could attain that for which our hearts have always longed for through the law, then yes, Paul, please tell us what that way is. If if option 1 is impossible, what is the other way? He tells us in verse 32, excuse me, 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why is nobody falling out of their seat right now? Oh, it is, okay, listen. A new way of righteousness has been opened for us. The first, while, I mean, it's still open to us, is beyond our reach and utterly impossible. The second is entirely possible. It's so simple that even a child could attain it. The righteousness of God is given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But there's more here. It's not that righteousness is reckoned to those simply who believe that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. Righteousness is not reckoned to those who believe that Jesus Christ was the greatest moral teacher that history has ever produced. Righteousness is not reckoned either to those who believe that even Jesus Christ was the son of God. So what is the content of this faith? Well, Paul goes on starting in verse 23. We'll pick it up where we started. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here it is. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the first question we need to ask about this is this what is redemption what does paul mean when he uses this word like when we hear the term today just in a general world in which we live we usually restrict that to the christian sphere the church sphere it means something about jesus and how he died on a cross but paul's vocabulary and syntax of redemption are actually borrowed from the wider ancient world Whenever two nations went to war, there would inevitably be prisoners of war who were taken. You know, they were not slain on the battlefield, but they were taken by the others. And so, you know, nation A wins the battle and takes prisoners of war from nation B. And then nation A sends word to nation B that they have some of their people. And if they would like to have them back, they're going to have to pay for their release. And you know sometimes nation B would pay the price and sometimes they wouldn't it doesn't matter the point is the whole process of prisoner exchange in the ancient world was known as redemption Additionally if the redemption was carried out then the price that was paid between the nations that was known as the ransom price So the process is redemption The price paid is ransom. And the thing to notice here is that prisoners cannot pay their own ransom. They must be redeemed by another. Now, the biblical writers borrowed this concept of redemption and applied it to God's activity with respect to his people. The most significant example in the Old Testament, of course, is the Exodus out of Egypt, which is the central redemptive act of God before the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And you know the story, I hope. Um, God's people over the course of generations had become a nation of enslaved people under the lash of successively cruel pharaohs. Eventually their suffering becomes so great, they cry out to God and he hears them. He remembers his covenant with Abraham And so God raises Moses up to contend with Pharaoh and set his people free. And then, you know, like in a series of escalating judgments against Egypt, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened against the Lord's command to set his people free. And then comes the final and devastating judgment of all most devastating judgment of all. The Lord informs Moses that he will send the angel of death throughout all the land of Egypt, and he will kill all of the firstborn of the land, from the livestock all the way up to the, the halls of power, Pharaoh himself. But he says to Moses, you must instruct my people the means by which they shall be saved from this judgment. I want to read it to you. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, skip to verse 6. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Skip to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So on the night of God's Passover, all who were found beneath the shed blood of the lamb will be spared God's judgment. And sure enough, the spirit of death descends on Egypt that night and kills all the firstborn of the land. And this great lamentation rises up amongst the Egyptians. But for everyone, who is sheltered under the shed blood of their passover lamb they are delivered into salvation and that's the act that breaks pharaoh's will to to hold God's people in bondage and he lets them go now how did god describe the work that he did in the exodus He told Moses, we don't have to guess, he told Moses before the Exodus even began. Like, what what word did God use to describe him fighting for his people, providing a way of protection from the spirit of death under the shed blood of the Lamb? What word did he use? Exodus chapter six, verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So prisoners had been taken, a ransom was paid for their redemption the ransom, in this case, was the life of an unblemished lamb, one for each household. And after the Lord protected them from his own judgment, he redeemed his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, if you've read it with us, you'll remember, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Lord is constantly referring back to this moment of redemption, either through the psalmists or through the prophets, and he's saying, remember that, remember Remember how he redeemed you from the house of slavery in Egypt. And the reason why people needed those constant reminders is because they failed to live into their redemption. The people, always and everywhere, slid right back into their idolatry. They broke the terms of the covenant God had made with them at Sinai. And as a result, they were ejected from their land and exiled in Assyria and Babylon, where they were enslaved. Again, the ransom paid by the first Passover lambs came back marked insufficient funds. The blood of those lambs was not enough, and their redemption the people's redemption was ultimately reversed. And the reason that happened is because God's people had a much bigger problem than enslavement in Egypt or exile in a foreign land. By Paul's reckoning, they were enslaved to something far more pernicious than a Pharaoh. They were enslaved to sin. And as a slave of sin, God's people can no longer enjoy communion with God because our nature has been so corrupted and God's nature is so utterly pure that simply being in His presence would annihilate us. And not because He's mean. Like, no. It's for the same reason that a flame goes out if you deprive it of oxygen. A flame by nature, needs to feed itself with oxygen. And in the same way, our sin nature must feed on the fallenness of the world around us in order to survive. But in the pure, unmitigated presence of God, our sin nature simply has nothing to feed on, and it can't survive, and it kills us. It doesn't matter how many times God redeems his people and pays the ransom of their release with the blood of bulls and lambs. Because of this more fundamental enslavement, the redemption will always be ineffectual, not because the Lord lacks strength to properly redeem his people. Listen, not because he lacks strength, but because the fullness of time had not yet arrived for the final redemption of God's people. but several hundred years after the people of God had returned from exile, the fullness of time had arrived and Jesus Christ was born, the true redeemer of his people. But just because Christ arrived on the scene didn't mean that God's people no longer suffered under the enslavement of sin. In his arrival, just his arrival, redemption had not yet occurred. God's purpose has always been to save a people for himself. But what will he do when those people reject him and stain themselves with sin and can no longer enjoy the communion with him that they were made for? Well, Jesus Christ, by submitting his body to crucifixion, redeemed us. He paid the price. And what was the price? By rejecting God, we severed ourselves from the only place we could ever find enduring life. And so in sin, we earned death for ourselves. That was the debt we bore against God's loving kindness. And that debt is precisely what Christ came to pay in full. And as we all know, the payment of a debt must be according to the nature of the debt. The payment of a debt must be according to the nature of the debt. That means if our debt was sin and death and judgment and God had wanted to redeem us, then the price of redemption was sin, death, and judgment. And Jesus Christ paid that ransom price with his own blood. And that's, and that is what Paul means when he says we have redemption. In Christ, He sent his only son into the world, and though he was perfect in obedience, he shed his blood and vicarious atonement for his people as the true Passover lamb, and then he bowed his head, and then he died. He had paid our ransom, which is to say, the price of our release. But we're talking about justification. So how does this magnificent redemption make us righteous? In other words, how does it justify us? Well, now it's time to amend my statement that I made earlier. I said that no human being in all of history has been able to attain righteousness by keeping the law. And that is not quite right because there is, in fact, one human being who earned his righteousness through obedience, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what occurs in our justification is something that is almost beyond belief, something that will break the back of the proud, and only the humble can bear it up. What occurs in our justification is that the righteousness that Christ earned, remember, Paul said there are two ways Of becoming righteous before God. The first is the doers of the law will be justified. Jesus Christ was a doer of the law. Christ earned his righteousness by in every moment of his life. He said, I do what I see my father doing. Never did he turn to the right, never did he turn to the left, never did he stumble. His obedience was perfect, and he earned his righteousness. Perfect righteousness, without blemish. The righteousness that is so pure that it bestows the right upon its owner to behold the face of God. That righteousness is given, Paul says, to all who believe in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And he says it's a gift. It comes to us by God's grace, his kindness, his overflowing magnanimity. He gives it to us without price, without extracting any agreements on our part. It's a gift and it's free. We have nothing to contribute to this reality. We must simply believe that we are reckoned righteous in God's sight because of the work of another. And in that way, the entire life of the Christian from beginning to end is is summed up in this way. Let us give thanks to God. We have nothing to give toward our justification. We have nothing to give towards our redemption. So we offer the only thing we are capable of offering, thanksgiving, praise, and honor to the one who did it for us. Now, one more point, and this is short. What what justification shows? We've seen the problem of righteousness. We've seen what justification does. Now, what does justification show? Paul teaches us one more thing before he ends this section, and that is the answer to, to the following question. Why did God do this? And Paul's answer is simple. In verse 26, he says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God gives us a new way of righteousness apart from the law for two reasons. Number one, so that his justice might be displayed to human beings. And this is important. Because for a long time, God was patient with his people. Paul talks about, you know, that God has overlooked sins and his divine forbearance. He's been patient with his people. He did not dole out judgment according to what their sins deserved. In fact, this has been going on from the very beginning. Like in the beginning, when Adam and Eve took the, the uh, forbidden fruit, like do you remember what the consequence was? He says, in that day that you take the fruit. In that day that you take the fruit, you will surely die. They took the fruit, they sinned, they rejected God, and what happened? Yes, they were exiled from the garden, and they died eventually, but it was not in that day. Why? Because God in his forbearance was being merciful to them. He was putting off their punishment. And through the Old Testament, you see the full weight, the the Lord holding back the full weight of his wrath against the sins of his people, when what they earned was the full weight of his wrath. And so despite the fact that they were probably grateful for that restraint, it did create a problem. Namely, was God actually just? He's a judge who says, this criminal earned the death penalty but instead lets him off with 30 hours of community service. That's not just. But Paul teaches us here that God put forth his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that God would be found just, to put his justice on display for the world. Death was earned, and in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, death was paid. God is just. That's reason number one, God did this. Reason number two, it was to show not only that God is just, but also that he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There would have been, like think about this, there would have been no defect in God's justice had he lined up the whole human race and said, death you have earned and death you shall receive and then extinguished us all in a moment. But instead, his own son, like bore the death of all of us, bore the weight of God's just wrath against our sin. And the Lord in his unfathomable kindness has offered the forgiveness of sins, perfect righteousness to every one of us who believes in Christ's atoning death and resurrection so that God could be found just But he is also the justifier of those who believe. And that makes sense out of verse 27. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded, it is excluded. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we have only one thing in which we can boast, the grace and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall say in that day, my own righteousness is but filthy rags. But I stand on the righteousness of another and in that righteousness, I am clothed and in that righteousness, I boast. And the answer will be plain, come faithful one, and behold the face of God. Now, as we do every week, we come to the table of God, the table of Jesus Christ that he has set for us. And all throughout the Old Testament, God commanded his people to remember the redemption that he accomplished in the Exodus. And to that end, he commanded that they keep the Passover meal every year so that they would never forget that it was those who were sheltered under the shed blood of the lamb, who were saved from the angel of death. And this, brothers and sisters, this is our Passover meal. In fact, when Jesus instituted, he, he used, not only was, was it a Passover, literally a Passover meal, but he used the same word with his disciples. He said, remember, remember. Remember that your redemption has been accomplished. Remember that there is no atoning work left for you to do. Remember that you have been justified by God's grace as a gift. And so brothers and sisters, as we come to this table, let us boast in the kindness, grace, and everlasting mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I I don't know what else I can say. It feels as though you've brought us to the highest mountain and shown us the curvature of the earth and we can barely breathe for the beauty of it all. So, all we can say is thanks be to God And as we come to this table, we pray that you would deliver even further grace to us so that we may rejoice in the glory of God. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.